That's the Carillon at St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Morristown, New Jersey. They've been playing during the pandemic in a program called Bells of Hope and Healing. Today we'll hear stories of hope and healing from two rectors of St. Peter's, who both spent the Easter season battling COVID-19. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin of morristowngreen.com. Thanks for tuning in. The Reverend Robert Tracy came to St. Peter's as interim rector in 2019, succeeding the Reverend Janet Broderick, who left after a decade to lead a church in Beverly Hills. Both ministers got sick after attending a conference in February in Kentucky. We spoke via remote with Father Bob on Easter Monday. So what was Easter like for you yesterday? Well, Easter was, we, we did a service uh, with eight people, which we have been doing uh, in the church. Most of them were singers. And it was, it's always a little strange when you have nobody sitting out there. But uh, since we have had an opportunity to do it a couple of times, you kind of imagine people and imagine faces. So it's not, um, it's not totally without some kind of imagination of people going on. And, uh, and so it, w- it went well. A lot of people responded. Did, did this particular Easter uh, feel, how, how did it feel for you personally? You've been through a pretty tough few weeks. Well, it was, it was, yeah, I have been through, I had this uh, terrible virus and, you know, I, I remembered that and I started the sermon this way that, um, you know, last Easter we were talking about Notre Dame burning down and that we would rise up like a phoenix from the ashes. And little did we know that in a short year we would be facing something much more horrendous than that. And I believe that, um, uh, we will, as a people, as a nation, rise up again like a phoenix from the ashes and bless those people that have given their lives in this uh, in this terrible situation. Was there any point where you doubted that you would make it to Easter? Yeah. Well, you know, I think everybody's experience is a little different. I was never hospitalized, but my wife is uh, stuck in Florida, so I was alone. And... In the first week, uh, it was true that you would wake up at night and you weren't sure you had the strength to get out of bed uh, and use the washroom or something like that. It was just, uh, you know, it, it was a long day's journey into night for a while. Um, and you didn't know. I mean, you were completely uh, uncertain of what what would take place and what was happening to your body. You knew something was happening because you didn't have strength and you did not, um, had no appetite. You didn't want to, you virtually didn't want to move. Did this, have you had the flu before? Well, not for a long time, actually. I've had the flu a couple of times, but this is nothing like the flu. How is it different? Well, first of all, um, for me, I think it's different for a lot of people. For me, you have, uh, it was, if it wasn't for my wife kind of, sending out and having food delivered here, I probably wouldn't have eaten. I just had no appetite. My, I I couldn't even hardly taste the food for a while. And, um, the, the other thing is that, you know, it's sort of like the loneliness of the long distant runner. If you're in a quarantine and you don't have any family around you, um, I fortunately had lots of parishioners and lots of texts and calls, 
but you know, at, at some point you don't even have the energy to answer the calls. So you, um, what it did for me is I had a lot of time to reflect on my life on those things that I was uh, glad I had done or happy I had done those things, which I wish I hadn't have done or left undone. And it was a time of, uh, of being a hermit in many ways, I think, like uh, like the early desert fathers. Uh, although you weren't in the desert, you were stuck in the desert of your not of your own creating, but of your own uh, situation. You weren't eating grasshoppers or anything like that. <laughs> I was not eating grasshoppers or locusts or anything like that. And, and now your wife was away; she was recuperating too, right? She had torn a tendon and. The rectory at St. Peter's Church has many stairs, and the doctor told her that she needed to come back to our place in Florida because it's just one floor, and the tendon wasn't healing. So she left after um, after New Year's and uh, was down there trying to heal her tendon, and then all of this broke all over the place. So, um, so walk us through. How did you know this was coming on? When did it hit you? Well, I'll tell you, it hit me on March 15th, I believe that was the day, yeah, it was it was a Sunday. We, this was our first time that we were going to um, uh, do a live streaming of the service, so we were all a little bit tentative. And I walked in and started the service, and I broke out into a cold sweat. I felt fine uh, up until walking out. And... Um, I went to the side because there were readings, as there usually are in the service, and I stayed there for the five or ten minutes, and I walked up to the other clergy, and I said, I've got to leave, and I just left and uh, went back home. And, of course, uh, some people came to find out how I was afterwards, and we went to Morristown Hospital, and I, I, I felt a little bit embarrassed because I didn't feel all that bad. Uh, I had a little stomach trouble, but I didn't feel all that bad. And it was, uh, they were terrific. I could not say how good that the Morristown Hospital was in the way it treated me, the way it handled coronavirus. And they did the test uh, while I was there. And I went back home. And then on Thursday, the 19th of March, they called me and said, you have the virus. Do you check any of the uh, at-risk boxes for this? Well, I'm 72. Mm -hmm. That's one. Um, I have atrial fib. I've had it for a long time. I don't know that that's a big box to check. Um, But I I think those were the main ones that I had. You know, I don't have any, uh, any diabetes or anything like that that is also a problem. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, so you, you feel sick on a Sunday in the middle of a, of a mass that you're streaming and, uh, and then how does it progress from there? Well, it progressed quickly because I wasn't, I wasn't convinced when they did the test for coronavirus, I was convinced that I had simply eaten and the doctor agreed with this because my uh, vital signs were all, my blood pressure was good. My oxygenation of the blood I didn't have a cough. Uh, I thought I'd gotten uh, some bad food uh, and didn't cook it well enough or something. But as it turned out, uh, as the next couple of days went on, I became weaker and weaker. Uh, it was harder to climb the stairs. 
and I knew something was up. By the time they called, I was not surprised when he said that you have the virus. And so at that point, did they or did you consider going back to the hospital? Well, I, I, I struggled with that, but I didn't want to go back to the hospital until I was really convinced that I was sick and enough to do it. And uh, I'm an interim rector at St. Peter's. So all my medical and I live in Florida and all my medical people were are in Florida. So I had no real doctor to turn to here in Morristown. Uh, and I have to say that the um, the health department uh, nurse called me and was extraordinarily helpful in telling me what to do, how to take my temperature, what not to do, what not to do. And he called me three or four times in the next week to make sure I was okay. And that person uh, really, uh, I think, led me through it more than anybody else. How many days were you really in the throes of this thing? I was in the throes of this thing for about eight days. And then it began to get better. How did you know you turned a corner? I could breathe better. I could walk up the stairs without getting shortness of breath. I started to begin to be hungry again. I could taste food. And, you know, you just have this sort of sense that you've turned a corner. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't anything, you know, dramatic. I still had a fever. I still had a temperature. But then the fever went down, and that, that made a big Big difference. So while this was going on, uh, did any of your fellow parishioners also come down with this? No, no. And I do not know where I caught this thing. I was at a conference for Episcopal Church rectors in Louisville, where six or seven, I'm not sure at the final, uh, other clergy came down with it from that conference. But it was three weeks after the conference when I came down with it. So I'm not sure I got it there. And of course, your predecessor at St. Peter's also was at that conference, right? Yes, she was. Janet she, Roderick. Yeah. Speak to her at all about her experience, because she came down with COVID too. Yes, yes. Yeah, we we have talked some. Uh, when I found out about Janet, she was in ICU. She was in the hospital. I didn't want to call her because, you know, you don't want to call somebody in ICU. But there are a couple of people who were very close to her who kept me informed about how she was doing. And then as she got well, uh, began to communicate a little bit. You didn't get it there. <laughs> I wonder where you did get it. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about that. I, you know, I was, um, you know, as a clergy person, you do a lot of visiting in hospitals, visiting in um, uh, nursing homes and uh, retirement homes. And the week before, I did a lot, just not by plan, but just because some of the people were not doing too well. So I either got it at that conference in Louisville or I got it at a nursing home, I think, around Morristown. That would be my guess. When we come back, Father Bob shares his moments of doubt. If I were to say anything else, I, would be, I wouldn't be telling the truth. I didn't think I could do it. You're listening to MorristownGreen.com. We're doing our best to help Greater Morristown stay informed during this challenging time. And we need your help. If you can, please make a contribution at MorristownGreen.com slash donate. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast and reach a large audience that lives within earshot of your business or organization, please drop me a line at MorristownGreen at gmail.com. 
or give a call at 973-944-0530. We're talking with Father Bob Tracy. Have you ventured out besides going to church to do the, the Easter Mass? Yes. Yeah, I, I finished. Um, I had to be fever free for 10 days. I think it was 10 days. It might have been 12. I don't recall. And I had to be without major symptoms. And the nurse would call me every day or every other day and check on me and make sure I was okay. And I believe it was on April 4th that I was uh, freed from quarantine in that I could go to the grocery store if I wanted or do something. I actually didn't go. I went, I've been to the grocery store once since Easter. Did you go with some trepidation? Yeah. Well, you're, you're always afraid you're going to give it to somebody else, you know, but they said that I was not contagious. Uh, at least that's what the health department said. And that I, I was uh, probably fine to do that. I went with a mask and gloves on and all of the um, appropriate accoutrements. Did anybody from church make you a special mask? No, no, no. I <laughs> My wife actually got some special masks and sent them to me. Tell me what the lowest point was like. Do you remember what the lowest point was yeah. like for COVID-19? The lowest point was one night at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when I um, I felt like I, I didn't even have the strength to get out of bed. And I sat there. And in my imagination or in my consciousness, I felt as if God was not letting me go yet. It's the best description I can I can tell you. I felt as if um, somebody picked me up and helped me to get out of bed. And um, you know, it was faith that did that. I, I if I were to say anything else, I would be I wouldn't be telling the truth. I didn't think I could do it, and I. I believe that it was um, with God's help that I came through this. Has this been the closest call that you've had, you know, with mortality in your life? No, no. Before I came up here, I had some, uh, in 2017, I had some cancer, and I had um, a gallbladder that was gangrenous. I didn't even know that you could still get gangrene, but the doctor came in and said that— they were going to have to take it out. There was going to be very tricky surgery, and that if it exploded, I might not wake up from this operation. And that happened, but it all went fine. I mean, I don't know which was closer, but both of those things happened. You think that might have prepared you in some way to deal with this? Yeah, I do. I do. I had a strong belief that uh, whatever happened, things were going to be okay. You mentioned uh, what it was like to preach to an empty church, a virtually yes. empty church. I'm kind of wondering the the opposite, though. Uh, eventually, when people are allowed to start gathering again and congregating, do you think you'll, you'll feel a little bit odd about venturing? I mean, you want a church to have people in it. Uh, that's the whole idea. But do you think that uh, in the back of your mind, you'll be wondering about when it's time to offer the sign of peace, for instance, if you're going to want to do that? Um, I think this is going to change us in lots of ways. I'm not sure what those ways are. I believe that this idea of streaming church services will continue. I think it's going to be part of the future. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, I think that the uh, the hug and the handshake on Sundays may indeed change, but that would 
that would be okay with lots of people I know who have never gotten into the piece. Um, we don't know what the changes are going to be yet and how it's going to affect us. We have a lot of uh, weekly services here and meetings with the congregation. And I'm aware of two things. One is fear. One is loneliness. One is wondering if I'm going to get sick or not get sick and how I'm going to do when all of this ends, because it's not going to end soon. And by soon, I mean in the next couple of months or more, you know. When you, uh, when you look back on this, how will you look back on this little period of your life? I think that in, you know, it's not going to be something that I want to relive again, but I think I'm going to look back at it with a sense of uh, deepened faith in um, my connection to what we call God or what, what is holy, that I think that there's a consciousness within creation that uh, is part of who we are and that that connection is not destroyed by death. But I can't tell you much more than that about it right now. Do you ever ask yourself, you know, gee, gee why did I make it through when a lot of other people haven't? Yeah, you do ask yourself that question. You know, why me? You know, why? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. You know, the, the standard answer is that, you know, your work is not finished here. But I don't even know if that's true. I think I think that, you know, there's no why. Um, I don't think that what we call God uh, makes decisions like you live and you die. I think it's more uh, random than that. It's more scientific than that. Um that, you know, some people will die and some people won't. You know, it's not that God protects you and doesn't protect other people. You had uh, mentioned that um, you sort of had, had a ledger that you were going through in your mind of the of the things you've accomplished and things that maybe you wish you had. Right. So do you have a new bucket list? Do you have some things now that uh, you've got this second chance? Anything in particular you want to do? It's a good question. I think... Um, that I want to help St. Peter's find a new, a new full-time priest. And I think I want to work with people who have been through this situation on their faith experiences and build and how we can build on that in the, in the near term future for the life of the church and for the life of each other. Well, Father Bob, it's been wonderful to talk to you and I'm so glad that you're feeling better. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Janet Broderick's brush with COVID-19 made headlines because she hails from movie royalty. Her brother is actor Matthew Broderick. She married him to the actress Sarah Jessica Parker. Her dad, the late James Broderick, starred in the TV series Family. We called Janet at All Saints Episcopal Church in Beverly Hills soon after Easter. So now I've had the pleasure of knowing you for about... 10 years and uh, <laughs> has it been that long? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I know that you're, you're very much your own person. And so I want to ask you what was worse having, having the virus or having to read headlines that said the sister of Matthew Broderick <laughs> is sick. Uh, you know, when those headlines were coming out, um, I was so sick that I didn't read many of them. Uh, to be honest with you, I, uh, I uh, saw them in my, you know, in my, what do you call it? My uh, cell phone in, in the ICU. 
And uh, I don't think I thought about it. I'm sorry. I know that's not very interesting. <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> so, so as we're speaking here, it's a few days uh, after Easter. And um, and when when did you turn the corner? So you had you had the coronavirus, and you were in pretty bad shape for a while there. Um, <clears throat> Right. So are you back? Are you back on the on the job again? Are you preaching out there? And I am. I'm back. Um, I Palm Sunday was my first Sunday preaching, and uh, my parish has been really kind to me. So I sort of was able to take it slow. I have a wonderful assistant, uh, uh, Nat Katz, and uh, he did everything. And uh, then slowly, I preached on Palm Sunday, did the whole service on Palm Sunday, um, did Easter. Uh, but not Holy Week. And then now um, I'm doing both uh, Sundays and also a class on Wednesdays um, and sort of back to work. Lots of Zoom, I guess, like everybody else in America. Uh-huh. It seems like a pretty pretty brisk pace for someone that was pretty pretty sick there for a while. I know. I, I have to say um, this is a very mysterious illness to a lot of us. Um, there's times when you feel strong and you can do a lot. And uh, even in recovery, there are times when it surprises me that I'm tired or um, some of the symptoms come back very in a very minor, but in a, in a way. Um, Have you ever had the flu before? Yes. And I don't really think this is like the flu. Um, at least certainly not like, not like my experience of it. Well, walk us through, if you could, um, you know, when you started to feel sick, what it felt like, well, I, and how it went. I went to a conference in Kentucky, in which uh, w- was for ministers. And uh, I came back on the plane. And in fact, I came back a little early because there was a ball that I wanted to attend. <laughs> and I, I, it was a dress ball. So I went to it. I danced. So I was fine about two to three days after. By about five or six days after, I found that I had an earache, and uh, it was going down to my throat. My throat didn't feel that well. I didn't have a high fever, but I knew that I couldn't really work. So I went to urgent care, and a woman said, uh, you don't have the flu. She tested me for flu, and she told me to go to bed and drink lots of fluids and use ibuprofen. So I did, and I kept not getting better. My ears kept hurting, but I never had a high fever. It was usually like 99.9. And I remember speaking to a doctor in my parish and sort of saying, how long do you have to be in bed like this before somebody has to see you? (laughs) And she said nine days. Um, She said for a virus, I had to wait nine days. So I did. And then I called my doctor again and said, look, I'm not better. By that time, my head had started aching. And um, let me think. I think just my head was aching, but I was truly exhausted. And uh, I kept not getting better. People kept saying, you've got to have deep rest. And I would try to get deep rest, and I'd wake up in the morning still feeling bad. But nobody got, nobody was impressed enough because I didn't have a fever. And uh, she just said, yeah, sometimes flus last a little longer. You know, she said it wasn't the flu, but it was a virus. Just go to bed. So I stayed in bed a little bit longer, and I think about four or five days later, I started getting short of breath, and again, I didn't take it 
that seriously. I wasn't that short of breath, just a little bit. And finally, a parishioner, a wonderful parishioner, said, listen, I'm a doctor. I want to listen to you. And she did. She came up and she listened to me. And she uh, said, I think you've got a pneumonia. So I called the doctor back and I said, listen, you have to see me now. I think I have pneumonia. And she said, well, what's your fever? And it was normal then. And I said, well, it's 97. She said, well, you can come in. So I did. And she sent me to get a chest x-ray to an open chest x-ray place. And by the time I was coughing, the coronavirus had been announced, but there had been no cases in California. I, this was in, what, uh, early March? Yeah, early March. I coughed all over the um, the uh, x-ray machine. Um, then the x-ray came back, and my doctor said, well, it's not a full pneumonia, but there's obviously a bed in your lungs. Um, you need to really go to bed and drink a lot of fluids and take ibuprofen, you know. So I did. But she mentioned to me that I had a, that the report, the radiology report said I had a slightly enlarged heart. And I thought, this is my ticket. I can call my cardiologist. He'll see me. <laughs> and at this point, do, do you check any of the boxes for risk factors for no, COVID-19? No. Okay. So I, uh, then I, I called my cardiologist. And about that time, uh, it came out that a rector who'd been at the conference where I was in Kentucky was positive. So, but the, the cardiologist asked me how many people were at this conference. And I said, you know, five to 600. And he said, did you know this man? Were you in a room with him? And I didn't remember being in a room with him. He apparently had a Scottish accent. I didn't remember anybody with a Scottish accent. So he said, well, let's just, you know, he took it pretty seriously. He said, if you're not better by Monday, we need to get a CT scan. I got, I started to get, now that's when I started to get really sick. By Monday, I was staring at the phone for waiting for eight o'clock for his office to open. And how, how many days has it been since you were at the conference at this point? 18. Wow. So nothing like what other people, you know, now we're learning much more about this illness than we knew then. They, they, People kept thinking it was too long, it was too far away, my symptoms weren't right, I didn't have a fever enough, and I, I coughed, but not that often, but at this point I had started really coughing, and but not, these are not productive coughs, they don't happen a lot, by this time I also had a pretty serious headache, which is also a symptom, my ears were hurting, that's also a symptom, and uh, I got to the emergency room with my daughter thinking still that I probably had pneumonia. But by that time, Cedars-Sinai Hospital, a wonderful hospital, I was their first case. The nurses had to like learn how to put the, the gear on. They kept having little classes. and I came in. They assigned me to an infectious disease specialist. I still didn't believe I had it. I thought it was so unlikely. And at this point, do they know that you're from a very famous acting family? Um, the thing is, my cardiologist knew. But, you know, I think one of the things that's been really bad about the press on this is that I don't think I was treated any differently at Cedars-Sinai than anybody would have been. Um, the difference it, it made is, when I was asked about that, it's just that people 
of privilege in this country generally get better medical care because they have insurance, because they have connections, because they can speak English well, um, you know, because they don't come from depressed communities, because they are able to get the proper nutrition, because they can advocate for themselves. Um, but Cedar Sinai, I think, would have treated any individual, and certainly this, my doctor, my cardiologist, would have treated anybody, I think, the way I was. Um, what happened during that day, though, was my daughter was with me, and uh, she got into an acting class that she really wanted. And I said, go ahead, go to the class. I'll, they'll probably release me to go home. And in time, through that day, I got sicker. It, it was like, uh, actually like uh, falling off a cliff. You know, you don't, you real, you know, you go in at eight o'clock in the morning. By about one, I was started oxygen. By about three in the afternoon, they were upping the oxygen. Then I had the CT scan. And I was really aware that you could tell if somebody had COVID from CT scan because there'd been a special on television and they showed how in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, they had seen what COVID looks like on a CT scan. So I kept asking, do I have it? They, at that time, there was no testing at the hospital. They had to send for somebody from the health department to come with a kit. That took many hours, and finally the person came from the health department, but it would be four days. It was actually four full days before we got a positive diagnosis from, from my test. They just, Were you in the hospital for that period? Well, by that night, I was in the ICU. I remember they came in and said, we're going to put you in the ICU, and I thought, I must be pretty sick. <laughs> <laughs> I was very surprised. But I do think that by that time, I was really struggling. Um, I was struggling to breathe and I was struggling to think, you know, when you have a virus, uh, uh that's severe, you it's also affects your lumbar system, which I later found out. It's very difficult to think. It takes a lot of concentration to text someone or to even figure out kind of what you're doing. Was this, was this comparable to anything you'd ever experienced? Certainly not. Child, no. Childbirth or anything? No. Childbirth is just pure 100% unadulterated screeching pain. <laughs> this is not painful. I wasn't, I mean, it was extremely uncomfortable and, you know, scary, but it wasn't like a sharp pain. It was, um, it was a struggle to, to uh, stay breathing. And, uh, and yeah. at this point, are the uh, the nurses and the doctors are they gowned up when they're they they look like they're in you know space land? And um, I was aware that I couldn't I couldn't see my family or my daughter. You know, was not any longer able to see me. I texted her. It just said stay home. Um, and I was text. I did text. I texted my my family, my brother and sister, my son. He was coming out to Los Angeles the next day. It happened to visit me, so he stayed with that flight. It would actually be a week before I got to actually physically see him. But, um, yeah, they were gowned up. I had an incredibly wonderful nurse. Um, I came into the room, into the ICU, and he just said, I'm with you tonight. I don't have any other patients, and I will take care of you. 
and he did. He, uh, I was so sick, um, and he had. They had to do a lot of moving wires and a lot of, um, you know, oxygen tests, and arterial oxygen tests, and things like that. And he just talked me through all of them. He very carefully. He was so gentle. Um, he was from. Uh, he spoke Spanish, and um, I got a text from a friend in Argentina, and he helped me translate it and write back. Uh, he was just, I really keyed on him because uh, he was calm. And I think it's really critical in a situation like this that you stay, that you, that you stay calm. I, I, I realized that part of this illness, and they certainly know this now, but I think I, I deeply knew that it's not just the illness, it's the inflammation, the reaction to it. So it's like really important not to overreact. So uh, was there any anxiety attached to the fact that you couldn't see your kids or they couldn't see you? No, I think I, I don't think I would have wanted them to see me. I wanted to get better so I could actually really see them. <laughs> I, <laughs> I putting them through seeing me at that point. Do you know what they said to me? I, I didn't realize this. I FaceTimed with them because I actually thought I was, I, I kept thinking I was all right, you know, not all right, but better than I was. But the point at which I FaceTimed with them, they say that I looked like Darth Vader. I sounded like Darth Vader <laughs> um, and looked like Darth Vader. I had no idea. I thought I was, you know, in a little hospital gown and with some oxygen. <laughs> I I didn't know that it looked that bad. So I, I think it would have been pretty painful for them to be there. I, I did think if I died, I started to, did start planning my funeral and I wanted, um, uh, St. Peter's, the organist there, Joshua Stafford to be the organist. And I thought, what do you want, him, what do you want him to, to play? My God, you know, Joshua Stafford, anything Joshua Stafford plays, I want to hear. <laughs> he, he played Bohemian Rhapsody during our uh, Bells for Hope and Healing a couple of days ago. Yeah, no, he's, he's a genius and a great, uh, a great uh, worship leader, a great Christian. And uh, I knew that... So you didn't, you didn't have a favorite hymn, though? That I wish that I could tell you. You know, I had a reporter asking me that, and I finally just made up one. But I can't lie to you, Kevin. Um, fake news, fake news. Yeah, I can't. I gave them a little fake news because I didn't know what to do. I gave them a hymn I hoped everybody would listen to. But um, <laughs> the actual truth is I just thought of Joshua's playing and how beautiful it is and uh, how he would minister to my kids. It would be, they would be in such pain. I mean, and then I thought of a preacher I love, Jim Monroe, who is a, really preaches the gospel so beautifully. And I know he would... He would help my kids and my family through as well. So, at what point are you starting to think? That and I think I was actually imagining St. Peter's at the time because I was out of my head. And St. Peter's has been my was my church for a decade. So I think I, I kept thinking I was even in my the rectory of St. Peter's. I think some of the time. Well, that would be a bad place to be because the current rector also had COVID nineteen. I know, but he he seems like he did really well. You know, he didn't have to have all this drama around him than i did he he had some tough moments oh he though. did oh, oh no yeah, oh, yeah. No. And he, was, he was at the same conference that you were at correct yes um, oh you no. a chance to chat there i don't remember seeing um, bob there 
I believe that I, I sort of skipped out to get to this ball <laughs> where I wanted to dance. Uh, and how many of them? How many of them came down with the uh, with the illness at the ball? Nobody. Th- this is what's amazing. N- nobody and nobody at um, that we know of within the time frame anyway, and nobody on my staff. And you know, I went to work for two days. I led a vestry meeting because my fever went down. I was tired, and I thought, "You louse, you know, get working. You don't even have a fever." And uh, it, yeah, and uh, so I should have given it anybody. We call it the corona um, in this house. So I should have. Uh, I would have. I. You'd think I would have given them all the corona, but nobody got the corona. Did they, did they all have to quarantine for fourteen days? Absolutely, I quarantined uh, massive numbers of people. <laughs> <laughs> I luckily did not do um, Ash Wednesday. There were four services or five services. I didn't do any, and I did not do the Sunday worship. Yeah, I knew. I was, But I thought I had the flu. I just thought I'd be giving people the flu. Oh, Even though there was all this talk in the news about There wasn't really. Remember, that conference was on the 18th of February. Hmm. I started to sort of feel symptoms on the 23rd. Maybe there was talk, but I, the doctor had said to me I had a regular virus, and I sort of had the wrong symptoms. They kept saying you should be cough, have a dry cough and a sore throat. I had an earache and a headache. Um, I felt like, yeah, I didn't think I had the right. And then I, they said you were supposed to have a fever, and I didn't have a fever, enough of one. They said you have to have 100.6 for it to be called a fever. <laughs> You're listening to MorristownGreen.com. We've been working nonstop to bring you the stories of how this once-in-a-century pandemic is challenging our community. We need your help to keep going. If you can, please contribute to MorristownGreen.com donate. And if you'd like your business or organization to be featured right here, become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast. Drop me a line at MorristownGreen at gmail.com or give a call at 973-944-0530. So you're back there, you're back there in the hospital with the the nurse who's helping you uh, translate your friend from Argentina. Yeah. And and things don't get better for a while, they get worse, don't they? Yeah. And I'm out of my mind. <laughs> um I thought a lot about Jesus. Um and I remember sort of a, a a a moment with Jesus where I just uh was praying and he said uh, it was like I I said to Jesus look I don't know whether am I going to go to be with you or am I staying here I realized that Jesus was sort of in charge of that but I was so comforted by the fact that he was there I think that's the thing about knowing God, you know, and knowing the Lord is that there's a place to go. There's a place to be where, where you're not alone and where you realize that things are going to continue. Did you see him? What did he look like? Well, he always kind of looks the same to me. Um, kind of like a man. Uh, I suppose like, like Rembrandt paints him. I think Rembrandt has affected my understanding of how Jesus looks. <laughs> uh, Rembrandt painted a Jewish Jesus, 
from Harlem, from the part of Holland where Jews were living when Rembrandt was painting. It's where his studio was. And he had a person sit for him. He's a very elegant young Jewish man. And so I guess that's a little bit the Jesus. But, you know, Jesus is always a little blurry. It's not crystal clear. And I'm farsighted, so very few things are crystal clear anyway. And Jesus is definitely blurry. You're pretty sure it was Jesus, right? I No doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's true. But I do remember thinking, I must actually be a Christian. Because if at a time like this, I'm thinking about Jesus, that's, I mean, that does qualify me, right? And and is there any... <laughs> Any trepidation? I mean, any any fear of the what the unknown or what what's to come? Um, no, no, because God is love, and uh, where there's love, there's God. Yeah, no, I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of what that means to other people, like my kids, and I'm afraid of um change you know but i'm not afraid of i'm not afraid of dying in that way no because you had a hard time when your father james broderick the actor when he passed didn't you? oh yeah i think it was life-changing for me um because my, and my father suffered horribly and he was so young he was only 54 and uh yeah he was such a young man and he um and he suffered with a terrible cancer. Um, and it was my first. You know, Abraham Lincoln talks about that. You know, when young people lose their first person, it's uh, it's so painful. Because you want to say, I don't understand the world without this person in it. Like, what is... And I remember seeing you after... Who was it who died? That wonderful fellow. Oh, uh, the cook. Lenny? Yeah, well, Lenny, but of course, Lenny, but the cook. Oh, chef, chef Melody, chef Melody, and you were yeah. so sad. I think I saw you in the co- a coffee shop where you were crying. You looked like you were gonna. Yeah, yeah, I still think about her. And you were just, you know, sort of existentially, like, what would Morris? What was Morristown? What was Morristown without Chef Melody? You know. Yeah. So that's how you feel. You know, you feel like I don't understand the world anymore without this person in it. And everybody keeps going on about their day. You know, they drink Coca-Cola, go to school, go to their job. And you're like, how could you be doing that? You know, Chef Melody isn't here. Yeah. So I worry about that. Yeah. But not, not where I'm going. Chef Melody, for those um, who, who didn't know her, she was the, the caterer to the stars. It was, uh, <laughs> it was this sign outside her yellow house on Washington Street. And she actually, she was from Beverly Hills or that area. She grew up probably very close to your church now. And she was on WOR radio a lot. And she had a lot of stories about catering for all kinds of famous people. And, and I think some of the stories were true. <laughs> Most of them probably <laughs> Uh, there, there were funny stories, and um, she was just one of those, one of those characters, you know, uh, that um, that you never forget. It, when I met her, we were both at the same kind of crisis point, I guess. You know, uh, her, she was, I guess, she was in her sixties then, and 
the economic meltdown had come uh, in the late 2000s. So as I was starting out in Morristown Green, she was trying to reinvent herself because the catering business had cratered. Yeah. Um, One of the things about her was that she never gave up and she was always um, looking to co-promote us. Um, She was one of those people that once you were in, you were in. Yep. You know? Yep. That's right. (laughs) Like, uh, I was lucky enough to have grandparents and great grandparents, and uh, they were in your corner. Yep. And they always would be. Oh, beautiful. And so people like that, you know, they're they're far and few between. Yeah, they are. And that's why that I'm so grateful um, that you are my guest on our very first podcast at Morristown Green, um, because you uh, were there at the beginning, too. And you were there for me at a very terrifying moment in my life. And I don't want to, you know, suggest it's like the terror that you've just come through or the terror that we're all facing now, but um, it felt very real to me then. Of course. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I'd had a long career in, uh, at a great newspaper. Yeah. You'd worked there for over 20 years. Yeah. 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 I remember I, I, very well. I remember the first, I remember looking at you and seeing the pain and, and trying to imagine what that must feel like. And all I kept thinking was, how do we, how do I open up the space here for you to know that there's a door opening when that one's closing, you know? Um, the economy had tanked. We had just started this thing, Morristown Green, and it was very exciting. You know, it was uh, uh, dipping our toe into the digital future. Right. And, you know, we were doing parades and things like the film festival and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I had a the backing of a great, talented bunch of people, and I was still getting paid. I, I still had health benefits. Yeah, that went on that. for a year, right? Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. And, uh, and then suddenly, you know, we went from the good ship lollipops to the Titanic, and, um, you know, the paper was basically throwing everything overboard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, some of my colleagues were able to go to cushy gigs in PR, um, but I'd put too much into Morristown Green, you know, just to – you know, see it fold, but, uh, it was, it was like jumping off a cliff, you know? Um, I didn't know how to run a business. I still don't really. (laughs) You're a minister, Kevin. (laughs) Well, I guess, you know what I'm, and, and you were fairly new there and, uh, it was sort of like a baptism of fire. Um, you, you know, you had a string of people, very wonderful, dear people who died in quick succession. In awful. tragic fashion. Awful. So you had to comfort all of them. And I had to write about it. Uh, and um, yeah. our library exploded across the street from St. Peter's. Yep. yep. And that blew a giant hole in our, yep. the fabric of our town uh, for a long time. Yep. Um, and yet, you know, through all of that, uh, you, you helped me. And you listened. You were compassionate. You were kind. Yeah. You connected me with volunteers from St. Peter's, some just terrific people, people like um, Barbara Snyder, yeah. uh, Sally Mus- Muscarella. They, they helped me with technical things. What Those are and, such saints. Those two. Yeah. Yeah. He was wonderful. Yep. And, and then you connected me with um, Sharon Sheridan, right. who was a journalist. Right. And um, right. for years, she was my right-hand person. She was my moral compass. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I... I 
I kind of like to joke um, that I drove her to the only higher calling than journalism and the only one that pays worth. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the ministry. That's true. The ministry. That's right. That's true. <laughs> I think she's very but, happy. You know, yeah. yeah. You know, I was so scared then <laughs> that at night I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fall asleep. To fall asleep, I would turn on documentaries about the universe. Like, Yeah, I remember you telling me. Take yeah. trips to Pluto and trips to Neptune, you know, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to realize that, hey, you know, they're – it's a, it's a big, big world out there and you're pretty small. It doesn't matter, you know, but, but you said that, um, Hey, you know, you got to take risks sometimes. And, you know, if they, if they work great and if they don't, Hey, you know, you took a shot and, and you even, you even let me work. <laughs> you let me work in the office above your own. <laughs> and, you know, at a time when I was feeling very, unstable this was a place of security right i felt like you needed an office i i didn't like the idea that you know working from home when we're and we're all having that happen now but it can be to go from working in a community to working at home can be very uh very demoralizing and it can be um you start to get fractured um and uh i thought it was really important for you to have an office you know that if you've had an office all of your life, a desk that isn't in your bedroom, that isn't in your living room, um, it's that's not something to necessarily give up. You know, I saw my husband give that up at one point, and he came home to work from home, and it it affected our life. It wasn't good for us. Um, so I I just was aware of that as a real. I thought that was a real landmine, even though kind of- actually you're such an active. <laughs> You're, you're such a speedy Gonzalez. I mean, you're just running around all the time. I kept going up there and be like, no, Kevin, because you were running around. And I'd say, well, what are you doing? Well, I was here. I went here. I covered this. I talked to this person. You know, at that time, we had a dream that the town would invest in a TV station. Yeah. And uh, I still feel that that, that would have been a great investment. Um and we had, at that time, we had the space to build one, too. What has now become Ride and Reflect was open. So um, that didn't happen, but uh, I wanted it to. Everyone, everyone's realizing now the need to have that kind of a resource as we're all doing this. Yeah, at, at All Saints, the first thing I did when I got here, we had a director here, but we uh, declared a, an office in a whole area. As just a place where we set up a, a camera, the lighting is perfect, the sound is good. So anybody who wants to film something doesn't have to go through a huge amount of drama in order to do it. But the the thing is, of course, now we can't we can't use it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I would I would uh, kind of joke with my friends though um, when I mentioned you know this beautiful, lovely. It's like a giant living room, kind of, with a beautiful view of uh, <laughs> Maple Avenue, yeah. and uh, you know, in this beautiful Gothic structure that's going to stand forever. And I joked that this was as close to God as I was ever going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's true. <laughs> that was true. And so I just, I just, Kevin, there are a lot of different ways to be close to God. <laughs> you know, right when you. When you're there for people, when you're, you said, you know, just today, you said, I've been doing obituaries. A funeral is a kind of an obituary. And um, 
when you're talking to somebody about the life of someone they lost who just died, you're about as close to that person's heart and feelings as anyone can be. And that, that is where Christ is. I mean, you, you know, it, just because a person doesn't use religious words doesn't mean that they're not existential. Doesn't mean that, because look at what you gave up. I, I think about it, you know, you decided to, uh, in some ways, not put your, your emphasis of your life into worldly possessions, but into an idea and a possibility. And that's what Melody did. And that's why you loved her. And that's what she encouraged you in. And that's what I do. And that's what so many people all around Morristown I see, I've seen do. It's about going, I am going to dedicate my life to service in this way that I can. I think that's where Christ is. It, it no longer matters to me whether you call it this or that. I don't mind if you never use his name. I mean, he knows you. <laughs> you don't have to. T- he doesn't need you to say his name. Unfortunately, I do use his name, but in ways he probably wouldn't. Have <laughs> <most of the> time. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say this, and and over the years, I've seen people get starstruck around you. Uh, hey, this is Ferris Bueller's sister, you know. Yeah. Um, but but to me. There's one star in the Broderick family, and I'm talking to her right now. Oh. Um, I, I just want to say thank you, and thank God that you're okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love you. Good luck to this podcast, I say. Our thanks to Father Bob Tracy and the Reverend Janet Broderick. The Carillon was played by Joshua Stafford, music director at St. Peter's. You can hear him on St. Peter's 1930 Skinner organ every Sunday. And thanks to Domenico Randazzo for our background music. Check out his work at domenicosounds.com. Thank you to the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair State University for its support in getting this podcast up and running. And thank you for listening. For morristowngreen.com, This is Kevin Coughlin, wishing you hope and healing. We'll leave you with Bohemian Rhapsody of the Bells.